Hi, this is Tiffany Bova, and I have the honor and privilege of welcoming back to the What's Next podcast, Maria Konnikova. She is the author of Mastermind and the Confidence Game and the forthcoming book, The Biggest Bluff, which is on sale June 23rd. She is a regular contributing writer for The New Yorker. Her writing has won numerous awards, including the 2019 Excellence in Science Journalism Award from the Society of Personality and Social Psychology. While researching The Biggest Bluff, Maria became an international poker champion and the winner of over $300,000 in tournament earnings. Maria also hosts the podcast, The Grift, from, how do you say that, Maria? Panoply, yeah. (laughs) All right, Panoply Media, and is currently a visiting fellow at New York University's School of Journalism. Her podcasting work earned her a National Magazine Award nomination in 2019. She graduated from Harvard and received her PhD in psychology from Columbia. Thank you so much for having me. But again, you're like one yes. of my only double time guests. I'm so thrilled wow, to have I you feel, back. Well, I feel privileged. I had such a wonderful time with you last time. I'm so honored to be able to join you again. Well, I'm not going to let you go on the bullish and bearish just because you've done it before. <laughs> you all, right, all right. All right. <laughs> all right. Are you ready? So you know the routine. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. A good news TV station. Bullish or bearish? Bullish. Oh, yeah, me too. Second, <laughs> facial expressions can give away a bluff. Bearish. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that one. That's not what I thought. Okay, next one. <laughs> oh, how exciting. Okay, next one. Remote learning. Bullish or bearish? Bullish. I think you have to be bullish on it right now. Otherwise, yeah. it's just too, everything's too depressing. Okay, let's go with that. So I'm going to start down that list. Uh, you know, I, I the good news TV station is something I, I always ask people who are, are journalists or in journalism. And it's interesting that many, uh, and I've had a few on the show are like, ah, you know, no, you know, that's not that's not what people want from news. And now I feel like it's kind of what people want from news. <laughs> so yeah. What, what do you think as a journalist, you know, how, how, how could that work? How could you see that working? You know, I, I've someone, I'm someone who's always been very bullish on that idea because I think that it's really, there's something really wonderful and something that can really make a positive impact on the world um, by focusing on on the positive, focusing on the good. I think so often we amplify the bad, we amplify the violence, we amplify all of the horrible things that are happening. And, you know, it's important, obviously, to note what's happening and to have your eyes open. But I think it's equally important to actually show that people can be good and that humanity is capable of great gestures, of positive feelings and actions and emotions. And I think especially in times when things are really rough, that can be very uplifting. And that can also help set a tone for people because there's a lot of psychological research that shows that when someone actually helps out, when someone lends a hand, when somebody is becomes a positive force, other people follow. All it takes is one strong leader for norms to change. Um, I wrote for The New Yorker a few years ago uh, about the research of Betsy Pollock, um, who's just a fascinating researcher from Princeton University. 
who, after I interviewed her, won the MacArthur Genius Grant. So, you know, I think I'm probably responsible for that. Um, (laughs) Yes, I probably, you know, highlighted her work for the judges. So, you know, you're welcome. Um, But but she deserves it. And what she has done is actually look at the power of norms in society. And a lot of times it goes in very negative directions. Norms can switch very quickly and people suddenly are expressing hatred. But she's found that it goes the other way too. And she did some fascinating field work in Rwanda after the genocide and found that there were some places where the violence didn't happen, where it didn't take root, where families protected each other, protected their neighbors. And the things that those places had in common were a powerful re- uh, a powerful leader who opposed it and who said, don't listen to the radios. The radios were inciting all of this violence. Um, don't listen to that. Um, and instead, listen to me. This is not who we are. And it worked. Um, and to me, those stories need to be told because that's what we should strive for. We want to change things. Yeah, and and I agree. You know, I I think that it's 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 interesting. Um, it's an interesting time where you just feel like there's a lot of bad news, and so sometimes it's the good news that can bring a smile to someone's face just in the right time. So uh, I appreciate your perspective as a journalist. So the second question in bullish embarrassed, which was not what I thought you would say, facial <laughs> expressions can give away a bluff, and your new book is called The Biggest Bluff. So yes. please pray tell. Okay. So I always think that like when people say you've got a poker face, no pun intended, considering it's you, but like, really, you can't tell from a facial expression if they're bluffing? No. Um, So this is, this is something that's a very common misperception that you can kind of see a man's soul through his eyes, right? You need to stare someone down and you can see if they're, if they're lying or not. And I actually looked at a lot of this research on deception when I was working on my last book, The Confidence Game, about con artists. You know, can you tell when a con artist is conning you? And found over and over and over that the answer was no, um, that human beings were no better than chance at being able to tell if someone was lying. And uh, there were some people who were kind of these super expression readers, um, and they were able to tell much better um, than almost anyone else, much better than chance, because they could see these micro expressions. This was Paul Ekman's work. Um, And I was able to interview one of them for my last book. And she used to consult for law enforcement Actually, I don't know why I said used to. She still consults for law enforcement on deception and on the ways to spot it. And one of the things she told me was that you can spot it in ordinary people, but in reality, if you have a very good criminal, someone who's a psychopath, someone who's a hardened criminal and has been doing this forever, if you have that, then she can't see any deception because she can't, there are no micro expressions because they're so good at it that there's no cognitive load. There's no conflict. They're, they're living the lie. So she can't, she said that she probably wouldn't be able to spot the best con artists because you can't tell they're lying now in poker. So I spent the last three, the last two years um, in the world of poker and went from not knowing anything about poker to being a sponsored pro. I won an international title, kind of my life, my life just changed completely. And this was, um, this is the subject of the biggest bluff. But one of the things that I was really interested in was tells. So, you know, I know that from this other research, 
and what I've done before that it's really hard, but what about poker? It ends up that people who are good at poker are very good at protecting our faces because we know that that's what we need to protect. So everyone knows you have to have a poker face. So it turns out that looking at the face is actually more hurtful than it is helpful because we get the wrong cues because instead we look at things like, oh, is this person trustworthy? We don't do it on purpose, but it actually, there's there's work on poker that showed that poker players made worse decisions um, when they looked at people's faces and were less able to tell if someone was bluffing. However, um, I did talk to a bunch of researchers who studied tells, um, a psychologist at Columbia, Michael Slepian, um, who did some very cool work on poker tells. And it turns out that there are tells that are just not in the face. So what Slepian found was that if you look at faces, people become much worse um, at spotting deception, as as predicted by what I've told you. But there are actually tells in the hands, um, in the way that people handle chips, in the way that they handle cards, in the way in their actions, um, and that's really cool. So that the hands might actually show much more than the face. And I also spoke with um, some experts like Blake Eastman, who actually is someone who researches poker exclusively, basically for the last few years, and has looked at thousands of hours of footage of of people playing and has computer software that analyzes it and looks at all of this. And he's also found that there are kind of movement patterns and behavioral patterns that can show you if someone is lying, but they're hardly ever in the face. So I love the hands. I never have heard that. So now I have to pay attention to not only my face, but my hands. Good God. So it's it's getting awfully complicated to be a con (laughs) poker player. Okay. All right. So, so, you know, and some of that, I guess some of the stories uh, from, I think it was the confidence game, right. That didn't make it to the book became the foundation for your podcast, the grift podcast. So tell some listeners about that. Cause I think it's such an interesting format and uh, obviously it got a lot of great recognition. So, so what led you to the, to the podcast? I had done, so I spent three years researching the confidence game. And during that time, I just, I'd gathered hundreds of hours of conversations with con artists, with victims. There were so many stories and so much of it was audio. um, And I couldn't use the majority of it because a book is only so many pages and I had to make a lot of painful choices. You know, which stories am I including? Which am I not including? And I was unfortunately not able to use all of the voices that um, that I wanted to. And so it occurred to me after the book came out that maybe there was actually another way to do this. And because it was audio, I thought, well, what about a podcast? I'd been doing a lot of podcasting work. I have a, and this is still going on, I have a regular segment every other week or so um, on Slate's podcast, The Gist, called Is That Bullshit? And I come on the show and we talk about different topics whether or not it's bullshit. So I've done that kind of work um, and it's a lot of fun and I enjoy it. So I thought, well, why not try a podcast where I try to tell some of the stories that I was unable to tell in the book? And I decided to, and I decided to pursue that. It ended up being a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. There was part of me that thought, oh, I already have so much material. This is great. You know, don't have to do much. But then I realized that what I wanted to do was really tell the stories. So it became a scripted podcast and every episode was about 10,000 words. So all in all, it was about 100,000 words, which is a lot. And it took it took many months um, 
But at the end of the day, I think it was worth it because I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the chance to tell stories in a different way, to flex a different set of storytelling muscles. Because as you know, it's very different to write for the ear than it is to write for the eye. Oh, I so well said. Like uh, when I've decided, well, let me say that differently. When it was, it was presented to me that it was time to write a book. <laughs> Let me say that the right way, right? Like I didn't wake up one day and go, I not like you. We had this conversation the last time. Like I'm not a writer in that way. Like I'm not a journalist at all. But I would say that I tell stories verbally. And so in the book, in my book, I actually try to be have it be a visual learn, listen, learn, write then just a read, learn. Mm-hmm. But I am a voice storyteller, not a written storyteller. So I like, I don't like you guys who are, you know, trained journalists and how you write, <laughs> right? So you'll go like, you know, this happened and then you go to sort of, you know, act two and then you bounce back to kind of tell the story at the beginning and then you go somewhere else, right? And I tell stories linearly, like, Mm-hmm. You know, one, two, three, four, five, where you might go one, three, two, five, one, you know, you kind of, <laughs> which, which when I read your stories, like I enjoy them. It's not, I don't enjoy them. It's just, that's not the way I write. Like, right. I write how I kind of tell stories. So um, when people go, oh, I, I listened to your book. You, they didn't read my book, you know, in the hardcover form. I feel like they missed so much of the personality of it. Cause I tried to put so much personality that you can't then just have, straight from voice. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that um, it is, it poses different challenges and you do have to figure out different ways of telling the story um, and different ways of engaging your, your reader or your listener. Um, So I I agree with you. It's always, it's very interesting to me. You know, a lot of people love audiobooks, and I actually, I recorded the confidence game and I just recorded the biggest bluff. So I did my last two books myself because I know how it sounds in my head. I know how it's supposed to sound, but it's not quite the same thing. And it's very, it's fascinating to me that there are some people who truly prefer that to reading. I can't do that. I actually don't listen to audiobooks, which is, which is very funny and which, um, you know, it, people might think is, is a little odd given that I've recorded too, but I can't, I can't process books that way. My mind just doesn't work that way. It's very different to me from a podcast. Um, so it's interesting that you had kind of this experience where, you thought that people listening weren't getting the full nuance of the book. I, I totally get that. Yeah. And, and uh, I thought reading the book was also very daunting. I mean, people will talk about, oh, so, you know, how was it reading your book? And I go, well, now I can personally say I have read my book cover to cover word for word. <laughs> yes. As it was written, like if you leave out a the or an uh or an s on a word, your producer will stop you, right? So yep. it's like I literally have read every word, and 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 then I caught you know about a dozen typos too, which was probably good too. But uh, you know, ultimately, um, it was a very different experience. I'll say that. Yes, for sure, for sure. 
I, I too caught so some typos. Um, unfortunately, my book has already gone to print. So mine too. Mine will too. So I caught it on the second <laughs> round, but mine too. But you know, oh, well, it is what it is. You exactly. Know, it is what it is. But so let's talk about your new book. Uh, I'm super excited on The Biggest Bluff. And so what, what led you to this one? I know the other ones, uh, kind of how you got there with game theory and poker and kind of your interest in those topics. Mm-hmm. But what got you to The Biggest Bluff? Well, so so game theory and and game theory is actually what got me there because I had never had any interest in poker and had never played it. Um, this was just not something that was on my radar. And I became really interested in this idea of chance. Um, this was about you know a year or so, maybe a little less after the confidence game came out. And I b- became just fascinated by the role that luck actually plays in our lives, um, both in good ways and in bad ways. You know, you have to get lucky for, for some good things to happen. And then when you get unlucky, um, it just really puts into stark perspective how little you actually control. We have this false confidence about our abilities to, you know, make certain things happen, to plan a future, to kind of chart out how things are going to go. Um, And then, you know, variance, the variance of the world, just noise happens. And we we have no way of predicting it. Um, That's the thing about the future. You have no idea what's going to, what's going to come. And, I had a lot of, I had kind of this year where a lot of bad things happened, you know, um, health issues, death in the family, people losing their jobs, just a lot of things going wrong. And I became really interested in exploring this further and writing about it. And that led me to game theory, actually, because game theory is kind of a way of looking at chance. And I learned that John von Neumann, who's the father of game theory, was a poker player and that game theory came from poker. And so I decided to explore poker and realized that that could actually be a way into this topic, that I could spend a year learning poker, playing it, and using that journey as the backbone for the book. Of course, The Biggest Bluff became something else entirely because I had no idea that I was going to be good at poker. I had no idea that it was going to not be a year, but much longer. I had no idea where the trajectory was going to go, um, which is very much in the spirit of the thing. So so it became a very different book. But originally, that was the, that was the intention. You know, Take a year and just use this as um, a way of looking at different themes of luck. And, you know, what do you, who, who would the book be for? So, you know, you've got mastermind conference game, biggest bluff, like who are you writing it for? You know, I know that's such a, that, you know, your publisher, which we share the publisher, right? (laughs) So we share the same publisher, but so when your publisher looks at you and says, who is this book written for? (laughs) Right. And you're like sitting there going, uh, everybody. <laughs> and they go, eh, wrong answer. Like, who is the book written for? Who, who, who is this book written for? And maybe different than the other two, or maybe it's the same. Who, who is it written for? You know, I, I try to actually not ask myself that question because I find that when you ask that question, whether you're writing a book or an article, um, it tends to, it tends to impede your writing and you don't write as well because you try to guess what people will like. You try to guess what your intended audience will like. And so this, this doesn't, I don't mean this to, to come off as self-centered and I will, I will elaborate in a second, but at the end of the day, I write for myself because I need to create what I think is going to be 
the best book possible, the best magazine piece possible, you know, the best piece of writing that I can, that I can possibly create. And that satisfies something within myself. Now, I don't, like I said, I don't want it to sound self-centered because of course I'm writing for other people. Of course I want other people to read it. And of course I'm writing for others, not for me in that sense. But I just don't want anyone's voice in my head saying, oh, this is what I like. This is what I think you should do. Because that actually stops me from from writing well or writing as well as I think I could. I actually don't show my writing to anyone while it's a work in progress. So until my book was done, no one saw a single word of it. The first time my editor saw it was the first draft of the book. I don't send chapters. um, I don't send parts. I don't ask for input. I just, I have to work in my own space, in my own time. And I actually don't work well if people check in on me and ask me to do things and ask me to give outlines because I never know where things are heading. I can't work with an outline. It's just never how my brain has worked. And so there are some editors with whom I work beautifully, including including my current editor. Um, and then some editors um, that I can't work with because we just, we don't, we will never have a good relationship because they want outlines. They want to know exactly what I'm doing. Um, they want to check in all, all the time. And I can't, I can't, uh, that's not something I want to be a little bit more specific um, because I realize, you know, I, I know what the intention of your question is. This book isn't for poker players. I mean, I I hope that poker players will read it as well, but it's for the person I was when I started writing this book, someone who didn't know poker, who didn't care about poker, but was curious about luck and chance and what I can control and what I can't, who wanted to become a better person, a stronger person, a better decision maker. It's it's for that person. It's for it's for people who want that. And I think this is the perfect time. You know, I, I often get asked, oh, you know, what's the one thing in Growth IQ that you want people to walk away with? Right. I'm like, oh, that's so hard. But I very quickly came up with the answer that the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. <laughs> so, you know, that was my that was my way of not answering the question. However, you know, the one thing is it's never one thing. But the the other um, the other side of it was um, I wanted to try to help people make different, better, faster decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, and understand that the decisions that they make today may not manifest themselves good or bad for some time, especially, you know, in the business world, it's like, look, you know, you make a decision and it might be, it might be 12 to 18 months before you see that ever come to fruition, like created a new ad campaign or you're changing your brand. It's not like, you know, the next day you wake up and go, oh my gosh, I see the results from that decision (laughs) right away. And I think people don't have the patience to wait for the decision to show itself uh, positive or negative. And and so they get impatient uh, and then they pull the plug too fast, right? They don't actually get the opportunity to let it simmer and marinate and breathe and then be it's, you know, whatever that is come to life. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, that's spot on. And one of the things that I think one of the most powerful things that poker taught me is to really and truly separate the process of the decision from the outcome, because you have to learn to analyze the process on its own merits so that you can figure out, did I make the best decision or not? And if you focus on the outcome, um, you're going to get the wrong data. 
because sometimes you can make a really crappy decision and do the wrong thing, but it all goes your way and you luck out. That doesn't mean that you should make that decision again. You shouldn't. You should learn that it was a bad decision, even though the outcome was positive. And likewise, sometimes you make the best decision possible. You know, you get your money in as an absolute favorite and you lose because the cards go against you because sometimes that happens because variance is variance chance is chance and you can't predict it and you can't control it. Would you do that again? Absolutely. You should make that decision again over and over and over because it was the right decision. It was the right process, even though the outcome was bad. And learning to tell the difference between that, learning to really analyze your process and figure out, would I make the same choice again, given the information that I have? That's such a powerful tool. The reason that it works so well in poker and helps actually calibrate your decision quality in other environments, environments like investing, is that you do get feedback very quickly and it's not as noisy of an environment. You can really pick apart all of the elements of the decision because it's a game. You know, it's it's circumscribed. You're sitting at the table. There are only so many variables. You can actually figure out the probabilities. You can actually look at the information. You can actually analyze that and look at the process and figure all of that out. Whereas in real life, there's just so much noise that you can always, always, always blame a bad outcome on something that's not you. And you can always take credit for a good outcome, even though it's also not you. So it's much more difficult to actually calibrate your decision process in reality. And I think poker is a very powerful corrective tool to that. Yeah. And and, and that's just uh, compelling, right? I mean, I think people, I, many people I hear also in this sort of decision-making and you make a mistake, um, you learn from it, uh, maybe you adjust, try again, right? It's kind of this fail fast, fail often, <laughs> learn, move on. Uh, but it also has to have a, a, a culture or a business culture and a leadership team and a manager even in some cases that allow you that latitude to make potentially the wrong decision as long as it's not you know illegal or you know going to put lives at jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Like put the big asterisks on those two things, obviously. But in the grand scheme of business, like is the product going to be a week late? Okay. You know what I mean? Is it going to, you know, is, is the color green not going to be right? Okay. We'll change it to blue, whatever it might be. But, you know, I think that people are afraid of making the wrong decision. So sometimes it's kind of analysis paralysis. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you've hit on a really important point, which is that so many times, I mean, we, we live at a time where everyone says, oh yeah, we value creativity, you know, move fast, break things. And yet they don't actually live up to that. The culture of organizations does not practice what it, what it says. Its actions uh, are against its words. If an employee fails, they suffer the consequences. They only want creativity organizations for the most part. For the most part, I don't want to blank, yes, put a yes. blanket all organizations. But for the most part, they only want creativity if it succeeds. And employees are afraid of failing with very good reason. They know that they will suffer penalties. They know that people don't actually want that. They don't want them to take risks because they only want good risks. And the thing about risk is you have no idea if it's a good risk or not until you try it and until you figure it out. (laughs) And And so you get into this rut where people aren't creative. People don't want to tell you new ideas. People don't want to go out on a limb. And so you have companies that just 
do the same thing over and over and don't innovate and don't don't try new things because the risk of failure is too high um, and creativity is punished, not rewarded. And so I think fostering a culture where, and this, this has to come from the top, you have to actually show that someone can fail and we're not going to punish you because we're separating the outcome from the actual process. Well, you know, during this time, uh, you know, this is happening. We're recording this in June of 2020, and I don't need to tell anybody anywhere in the world what's going on at this moment in time. Um, but in the United States, we have a lot of people that are unemployed, and and they're and globally, but specifically in the U.S. I'm I'm going to ask this question: Is you know, this this is also a time where many people are saying, "What can I do during this time?" That I'm either working from home, or you know, I've now lost my job, or I'm in fear of losing my job. And my last bullish and bearish question to you was that remote learning, and you said your answer was, sort of during, especially during this time, how how can I not be bullish, right? Mm-hmm. And so thinking about that reskilling. And taking a chance on yourself and maybe not making the right decisions every time, but putting yourself out there every day, whether it's taking an online course or taking a free training or listening to a podcast or reading a book or whatever it might be to really invest in yourself, um, you know, anything around reskilling as it relates to the things that you've covered in, especially, you know, in, in one of your three books, but more importantly, just, you know, in the sense that you, you are, uh, you know, in the in the you know journalism business, you're very much in the academia world. And so, what what would you say about just reskilling and reeducating at this time? I think it's really important, and I think that this is actually something that I've also learned from, not necessarily from poker, but from my journey. You never know what skills are going to be useful, and you can't predict what you're, you know, w- what is going to happen. You can't plan your career, you know, step A, step B, step C. And I don't think it's a good idea to learn things because you think you should learn them. I think you should learn them because you're interested in them, and you have no idea how your skills will leverage in different environments. So one of the things I found was that I ended up becoming much better at poker much more quickly because lo and behold, some of the skills that I'd picked up randomly not realizing they'd be useful for poker ended up useful for poker. It's not like I was preparing myself to make a career change and enter the world of professional poker. That did that never crossed my mind. You know, it just kind of happened because a lot of things came together and it turned out that I'd been preparing in different ways for that and I didn't even know. So I think that it's it's really important to actually to invest in yourself and to do things and take opportunities. And you might not know how it's going to be useful immediately, and it might not show immediate dividends, but you just never know what's going to happen. You never know when connections that you fostered before are going to actually bear fruit. And I mean, right now, all of this is very hollow advice because we've just seen every single social safety net exposed. We've realized that there is no safety net. Our society is just one big crack um, and there's no glue there. And so all of this advice is all well and good um, if we have all of these other things. But I absolutely understand that people might want to spend the time right now not investing in themselves, but investing in changing the world. And I don't think that's a bad thing. No, and I think, you know, I think that those two things are hand in hand. You know, you, um, the more you can know and educate yourself, you may find opportunities where you can apply your 
newly formed skills or interest or, you know, now that we, you know, we can't say we don't know. <laughs> right. And so, you know, what are the things that we can do? So, so Maria, this has been just a lot of fun. I, I so appreciate you being uh, willing to come back and talk to us a second time here on the What's Next podcast, especially excited about your new book coming out. I, I know that when we spoke after the last one, that this one was maybe going to happen. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that it has a better you than me. Let's just say that. Um, <laughs> and I wish you all the best for uh, The Biggest Bluff, which goes on sale June 23rd. Uh, but before we drop from this conversation, any last bits of, of advice you'd like to give or how people can keep in touch with what you're up to and, and read your, your wonderful work? Um, well, I think two things. The piece of advice I want to give is that it's always okay to say you don't know. Um, and I think that it's very, it's very big to accept that, you know, the world is uncertain and to be okay with that. It's one of the, it's one of the big takeaways from my book. And I think that, you know, it's okay to feel powerless sometimes. Um, and, to try to figure out a way around that and to figure out, you know, what can I control? What can I focus on? So that's, that's my advice. Um, and then in terms of where people can find my work, um, mostly I'm, I think the best places would be probably Twitter and Instagram, which is where I post most of the things I do. And Twitter is at mkonnikova, which is just my first initial and last name. And Instagram is girl named Maria, except girl does not have an I in it. Not because I'm illiterate, but because someone had already taken the handle girl named Maria with an I. So mine is GRL. <laughs> there you go. Sometimes it's just the basic and if there's no other, there's no hidden meaning, just <laughs> just couldn't get the name. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The screen name I wanted was not available. So I took I took the next best thing. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Maria, for joining us today on the What's Next podcast. I appreciate you, all your work. Thanks for coming back. It was It's always a pleasure and you're always welcome. Thank you so much, Tiffany. This has been an absolute pleasure and I'm so glad we had a chance to speak again. So much fun to have Maria back on the What's Next podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation about her new book, The Biggest Bluff about good news, TV stations, about facial expressions, about remote learning, you know, how to invest in ourselves. It was a great, amazing range of topics that we discussed today. So I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the What's Next podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, share with your friends, leave a comment. I appreciate you spending time with me here today. I look forward to having you back again soon.